Hello, my name is Martha. Hi, Ken. <laughs> the Old Testament reading is found in Proverbs 30, 7 to 9. Two things I ask of you. Don't keep them from me before I die. Fraud and lies keep far from me. Don't give me either poverty or wealth. Give me just the food I need. Or I'll be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or I'll be proud, poor and steal and dishonor my God's name. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in 2 Corinthians 9, 7-9. Everyone should give whatever they have decided in their heart. They shouldn't give with hesitation or because of pressure. God loves a cheerful giver. God has the power to provide you with more than enough of every kind of grace. That way you will have everything you need always and in everything to provide more than enough for every kind of good work. As it is written, he scattered everywhere. He gave to the needy. His righteousness remains forever. The word of the Lord. If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, good morning. It is good to be back. I missed you the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, Sarah, the kids, and I went on a five-day camping trip in Wyoming, full tent camping. It was amazing. And then last week, I was preaching at New Life East, but I missed you all. It is great to be back. Before we dive into the scripture today, I want to give you an update. As many of you know, uh, we've been here at the Antlers since sometime, I think it was late January, early February. And uh, we've been hoping to go from here into back to Palmer. That was kind of our original hope and plan. Our last Sunday here is next Sunday. So we're here today and then we're here next Sunday. After that, uh, their conference and event schedule here at the Antlers takes off. So we can't have the space that we need uh, each week after that. So our hope was to go back into Palmer on August 8th. However, they're doing some repairs and maintenance things, replacing fire doors and other things in the auditorium. So the auditorium will not be available until sometime in October. So that left us with a two to two and a half month gap, kind of eight or 10 weeks of us going, well, where are we gonna gather to worship? Uh, and we have exhausted every option that we could think of downtown, calling and asking and trying to find a place that's big enough, that's available uh, week in and week out, allows us to do kids ministry, all of those kinds of things, and we have been unable to find anything. Um, so the good news is, is we're part of a larger family of churches, uh, that we are not alone in this. So beginning on August 8th, 
So two weeks from today, we're going to be back up at New Life North just for a short amount of time, just until Palmer Auditorium is ready. And as soon as Palmer's ready, then we'll be back downtown. So we'll have this gap of eight to 10 weeks. We will have our own space for worship. So we'll have our own service up there. And we're working on a plan to have our own space for kids ministry as well, so that our team can continue to partner with you as you disciple your kids and students. So we're working on all of that. We'll have details for you next week. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your patience. And thank you for saying, you know what? Let's do this together. Let's say we can't control the place that we worship, but when we worship and who we worship and why we worship and who we worship with, that's in our control right now. So let's gather together up at North and continue to worship him uh, during that time time. So that's the big announcement for today. So this week, next week, here, August 8th, up at North, sometime in October, back at Palmer, finally. (laughs) After, I think it'll be 18 months or something at that point. And keep praying for a permanent building so we don't have to worry about this kind of stuff anymore. All right. We are continuing our summer series today through the book of Proverbs called How Do I? We have three weeks left. And we've yet to talk about one of the book's favorite topics, and that is the topic of money. Now, some of you, you literally have built your lives on managing money. It's what you do for your career. You're a personal financial planner, you're an investor, you're a banker, you're an accountant. And so you hear that like, yes, finally the church is talking about this, and you're extremely excited today. Others of you are just excited because maybe you found some tools that have helped you along the way. You're experiencing some joy or some financial freedom, or maybe you just have some momentum in that area of your life. And some of you, though, you're like, I don't really care too much for money because money can't buy me love. (laughs) I had to slip that in there. Others, others of you are going, you know, more money, more problems. I don't really want to talk about this, you Biggie Smalls fans in the room. Others, though, there's a sense that as soon as we start talking about this, we start shuffling in our seats a little bit and maybe wondering, maybe my kid's number will come up on the screen, like just today, like this one Sunday. And, and the truth is, is that even the mere mention of money can evoke a lot of difficult emotions for us. There are all kinds of things that come up. For some, it's joy, it's provision, it's gratitude. And for others, it's harder emotions. One of those might be shame. I remember the very first time that I set out as an elementary kid to make my first big purchase. I was an avid baseball card collector and my favorite baseball player, this guy named Kirby Puckett. And he had a rookie card. There we go. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate that. World Series champions, 1987, 1991, not since. There's some pain in this story. And I had my heart set on finding this rare rookie card of his. And so I had taken the money that I had made mowing lawns and shoveling snow, and I'd gathered it up, and we were going to a baseball card show up in Minneapolis. And these were hard to come by in that area, so I was looking around, and I finally found one, and it was right within kind of the amount of money that I had budgeted. And so I was like, all right, here I go. I've saved my money. I'm going to buy the thing that my heart's been set on. And so I bought it, and then excited. I went to go and find my dad and show him the card. And he, and he looked at it and he asked me, how much did you pay for it? And then he said, you paid too much for that card in that condition. And all of the joy 
of that moment was just like sucked out. And I started to feel foolish and started to feel shamed. And so now the, the one thing that I had longed to buy, every time like I look at it, there's that story that comes up. And for some of us, every time you think about money, there's something that happens with that, that, you, that you're triggered in some way and you start to think about a, a painful experience. Or maybe you just experience regrets. Sarah hears me all the time talking about our finances, like, oh, we should have bought a house in Kentucky, and we shouldn't have bought a house in Tulsa, and I should have bought stock in Amazon back in the 90s, but <laughs> I really didn't think I would ever buy a book online. I mean, I wanted to go to the store and smell the pages. <laughs> Can't remember the last time I've been to a bookstore. <laughs> For others, like, it just brings up anxiety, and maybe increased anxiety because of the pandemic and all that has happened in the last year. You're worried, legitimately worried about where's the next meal going to come from? Worried about, is there going to be a roof over my head? Worried about how am I going to get to work? Worried about how you're going to provide school supplies for your kids? Worried about, are you going to have enough to ever retire? Like when you're unable to work, will there be enough there? And for some, there's just pain. You've had something tragic happen to you, where either something happened to you that has greatly diminished your ability to make money, or somebody has wronged you in some way. You have been frauded, you've been stolen from, you've had something incredibly painful. And the truth is, some of us have experienced all of those emotions at church, mixed in with some guilt and manipulation, just you know, to kind of season that on the top of those things. And so this morning, my hope is not to add to any of those negative experiences or those hard emotions that we've experienced around this. And yet money is a significant part of our lives. And it is a critical part, therefore, of our discipleship. The scriptures say a lot about money and wealth. Jesus himself talks about it a bit, and sometimes in some really strong language, like we heard in the gospel reading today, that no one can serve two masters, that either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. Jesus here is using a Jewish idiomatic way of speaking that oftentimes in Jewish literature we'll find people saying, love this, hate this and talking in these kind of extremes, but it's an emphatic way of speaking about the demands of exclusive loyalty, that Jesus says it's impossible to be fully and exclusively devoted to both God and to money. Craig Blomberg, one of the professors up at Denver Seminary, puts it this way. He says, if this is true, that we cannot serve both God and money in the sense of making an ultimate commitment to both at the same time, then there is no more telling test of true discipleship than our use of finances. But there's something about this that gets caught up in our hearts, gets caught up in our loyalties and our allegiances, and therefore is something that God wants to speak into and claim as territory for himself, as he wants to claim territory in every aspect of our lives. So money is something that we've got to talk about and we can't cover, though, every dimension and every nuance and every situation in a sermon. And so oftentimes when we're talking about sermons, I'll say that my great hope in any sermon is simply to spark a conversation. It's to start a conversation first and foremost between us and God. A conversation that leads us to prayer. 
that says, okay, God, this is your word. Would you help me? Would you show me? Would you teach me? Would you open me up to what it is that you want to do in this area of my life? And then secondly, in conversations with others. And it may be that out of this conversation, you go to a mentor or a personal financial planner or a life coach or someone to say, I just need some help. I need help. I've been pretending that I've got this all figured out and I've got this under control and I need help. I need someone to come in and it takes that step of honesty and vulnerability in order to kind of find your way toward freedom in this area. So whatever that conversation is, that's my hope. Today we'll be focusing on what Proverbs specifically has to say about this, which is actually one side of a conversation in the wisdom books. We said this all the way at the very beginning, that Proverbs is sort of based on this idea that the righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer. And then you have two other wisdom books, Ecclesiastes and Job, that talk about when that doesn't happen. (laughs) Right? And we have to hold those in conversation with one another. And that's one part of the conversation in the scriptures. We then take those things and put them in conversation with Jesus and the New Testament and other books. We're going to have that part of the conversation today. But whenever we're talking about money, money is always a part of a larger system that we call economics. It's part of something that's bigger than that. Economics can really be based on three basic practices or activities that make up any economic system. There's production. How do we make stuff? How do we grow stuff? Consumption, what are we eating or using? And distribution, how are products and wealth and those things being distributed across a society? What is that economic system? You think about it in Chick-fil-A terms, the people in the back room, they're the production end of things. The my pleasure people, they're the distribution end and I'm the consumer. eating way too much of the holy chicken. (laughs) We tend to think when we're talking about the Bible that the Bible really only cares about the distribution end, right? That the sum of all the the scripture has to teach on money, the sum of all of it can be wrapped up in conversations about tithing. That really all that the scriptures has to say is give 10% of whatever you make back to God and he'll be pleased with you so that you'll then prosper materially. That we think that that's all that the scriptures have to sort of say about it. But actually, the scriptures say a whole lot more um, about each area, about production, about consumption, about distribution, and about practices in each one of those areas. It says a whole lot more than that. So I want to just kind of pop into Proverbs and talk about each of these three areas just really briefly as a way of hopefully, again, sparking conversation. So one of the things that we see in Proverbs is that the people of God are called to participate in ethical industry, to participate in good, old-fashioned, honest, hard work. That there's something about our call as the people of God that is just about getting our hands in the soil, putting our minds and our bodies to work. Dorothy Sayers, the brilliant um, English theologian, she says in one of her articles that Christian work is good work that's well done. It's finding something good to do and then doing it with all of our might, with all of our strength, and doing that as an act of worship to God, of saying, I'm going to put my hands to this. I'm going to put my strength to this in a way that is honoring to God. And Proverbs takes this sort of idea and often connects the accumulation of wealth with diligence. 
of saying that those who work hard experience prosperity in the world. And then it correspondingly says that the lack of resources is often connected to sloth, to laziness. Proverbs 10, 4 says, laziness brings poverty, but hard work makes one rich. Proverbs 28, 19, those who work the land will have plenty to eat, but those with worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. Now, we know it's not that simple, right? This is where Ecclesiastes and Job and other things come into play, that there are many reasons why people find themselves in, po- in poverty. It's not simply only connected to this. It's possible, actually, to work really hard and still find it difficult to make ends meet, okay? especially in our day and age. So it's not as simple as that. And we also know that the rich can be quite lazy, Billy Madison, anybody? Like, just as an example in there? I had to think of a fictitious example. I didn't really want to go anywhere else. You know, we live in a world where billionaires go to space, so I don't really know what else to to say in the middle of that. So, in general, though, our industry, our work, our diligence is actually the primary way that God provides for us. This is the primary way in which God's provision comes into our lives. God gives us the ability and the opportunity to work, and that work produces something that we then consume, that we then live off of. And from the opening chapters of Genesis, we actually see this is how God made us, that we were created with the capacity to co-create with God, that we were created with the capacity for creativity and diligence and work. We were put in the garden in order to till it. But this was actually a pre-fall call for us, that work is not simply something that happens because we've sinned, but it's actually part of us bearing God's image in the world, that the way that we were made and designed and put together we find that when we are working, we are expressing part of our humanity in this process. One of the things I'm so grateful of in my childhood is that this was actually distilled in us early on, that from the time that I can remember, we were doing chores around the house, but then we were given all all sorts of opportunities to mow lawns and shovel snow in Iowa and, and find those things and to be diligent with those kind of efforts. And what Proverbs says is that when we do that over time, it begins to generate income for us. That this is part of what we're supposed to do, is we're called to work. But Proverbs also tells us that our industry, that our work must be, must be ethical. It must be good work. It must be holy. Proverbs ten sixteen says, the wages of righteous lead to life, but the earnings of the wicked lead to death. Proverbs 11, 1, the Lord detests dishonest scales, ways in which people manipulate other people, causing them to pay more money for inferior products or not uh, actually having a just economic system, but delights in an accurate weight. Proverbs throughout condemns things like stealing, like charging high interest rates, like get-rich-quick schemes, exploiting the powerless, oppressing the poor. Over and over and over again, Proverbs says, don't get rich that way. That there is an ethical way to go about our work. We are made to work, but not all work is good work. And not all wealth is a sign of divine blessing. 
There are times that wealth is a sign of dishonest, unethical sort of behavior. Some people can actually generate wealth doing very terrible things to other people. So it is more nuanced to this. What is a sense for us in Proverbs is that our economic gains should not come at the expense of our neighbor's life, our neighbor's health, our neighbor's safety, our, neighbor, our neighbor's soul, our neighbor's own ability to be able to put food on their table and provide for their family and their kids. That this should not be the way that the people of God go about these kinds of things. At the same time, our gains shouldn't come, across, come at the expense of our life, of our health, of our soul, of our relationships. We are made to work, but we're made for more than work. And throughout the, throughout the scriptures, God actually puts limits on our production. He says, no, 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 it's not good for you to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Proverbs 23 says, don't wear yourself out trying to get rich, but be smart enough to stop. Some of us, our problem is not that we're underworking, the problem is we're overworking. And we are wearing ourselves out. God commands us actually to put limits on our productivity. This is what the Sabbath is. The Sabbath is a call to be diligent and work hard for six days and on the seventh day to rest and to give rest to others, to not cause others to work in that. Sabbath, I think, is actually one of God's greatest gifts to us. But it's a gift that's incredibly difficult for us to receive. Like, uh, I'm just not so sure about that. Might feel like I might be leaving something on the table that I need to go after. But he encourages us to take time to rest, to celebrate, to delight. Sarah and I have been trying to figure out, oftentimes unsuccessfully, how to practice Sabbath for the last 20 years. So like figuring this out and we're not good at it. But it has sustained us. It has sustained us in ways that I can't even fully articulate. It's been more sustaining for us, oftentimes, than the work that we've produced. So God calls us to participate in ethical industry. The second thing that we see in the scriptures, particularly in Proverbs, is that God invites us to practice contented simplicity. Contented simplicity. Simplicity is that practice that actually governs our consumption and governs what we spend. Some of you are familiar with this quote. You either heard it from Dave Ramsey or from Will Rogers or from Tyler Durden on Fight Club. Some of you don't want to admit to hearing it on there. But it describes the American economic system this way. It says, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. We buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. But our whole system encourages us to do this over and over and over again. But the scriptures tell us it's actually wise to live below our means. It's wise to avoid debt, to get out of debt. It's wise to save. It's wise to invest. It's wise also to be content. Proverbs 6 talks about the ants and says this, go to the ants, you lazy person. Observe its ways and grow wise. The ant has no commander or officer or ruler, no boss. Even so, it gets its food in the summer and gathers its provisions at harvest. The ant knows that it has to gather food when it's available. The ant knows when it's time to work. 
but it also knows that there's a time that it won't be able to work to store up for winter, that it can't consume all that it gathers all at that time, or it will die. It's unwise to consume all that we earn. It is wise to save, to invest, to plan, to think about the future. Proverbs even says in Proverbs 13, good people leave their grandchildren an inheritance. It's even good to think about generations that are coming after us and how we're going to care for them if they happen to fall on hard times. But the scriptures are really clear that there's a difference between saving and investing and planning and hoarding. There's a difference between those things. There's something different about preparing for the future and just living a life that is controlled by fear and greed. That a life that's controlled by fear and greed actually leads to destruction. Proverbs 28 says, the stingy try to get rich fast, unaware that loss will come to them. There's a sense of Sometimes in our culture that I need to get as much as I can, as fast as I can, by whatever means I can, and hold on to it for as long as I can. And what the scriptures teach us, no, that is no way to live. That is no way to experience the full life of God. Ecclesiastes says it this way. He says, I have seen a sickening tragedy under the sun. People hoard their wealth to their own detriment. See, we're called to be wise and to plan, but at the same time to trust God with the future and to learn how to be contented, to live simply and to be content in the present. This is where that passage in Proverbs 30 comes. Don't give me either poverty or wealth. Give me just the food I need or I'll be full and I'll deny you and say, who's God? Or I'll be poor and steal and I'll dishonor the name of the Lord my God. Just give me the food that I need. Jesus tells us to pray this. Give us today our daily bread. We're called to learn how to desire what is necessary, to long and be grateful and rejoice in what is sufficient. And Proverbs tells us to avoid the spiritual dangers that are found in both poverty and wealth. There are actual dangers on both sides that can impact our relationship with God and with others. So we're called to find a place of contented simplicity that fills our lives with gratitude, that thanks God that we have enough. The third thing we see is that the scriptures call us over and over again to pursue sacrificial generosity. That the aim of industry and simplicity of creatively working and engaging and living simply and contented is so that we might actually become generous people. This is actually what this is aiming toward is that we might live our lives open-handed and generous. And the scriptures specifically talk about this in two ways over and over and over again. A generosity that's expressed as an act of worship that honors God and a generosity that's an act of justice that cares for people on the margins in our community. It's a two-sided generosity, an act of worship to God and an act of care for other people. Proverbs 3, 9 says this, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first of all your crops, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will burst with wine. Throughout history, the people of God have offered a portion of their produce, of their income, 
as an act of worship. We see this with Abraham and Melchizedek. We see it with the Israelites coming to the tabernacle or to the temple with the Levites. We see it with the early church bringing to the apostles or collecting offerings to you uh, those that uh, as an act of, of worship. And in each of those cases, what happens is, is that that portion is brought in the context of worship and entrusted to the leaders to provide for the needs of the community that's gathered there in worship. And it's always described as an act of gratitude for what we have, as a way of thanking God. Gosh, look what you have provided. And an acknowledgement of trust that in the future we'll have what we need. That we don't have to hoard onto it and live like this. But God, the God who has provided for what we already have, will continue to provide for what we need. And it's about relinquishing control saying, I, I'm, I don't have to be in control of all things, but to actually entrust it in a way that says, God, I'm entrusting this to you and to your people to determine how to use. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not room for accountability there. There should, there should be a lot of accountability for how churches use their resources, for how churches use their funds. For us at New Life, we're part of the Evangelical Council of Financial Accountability. We go through yearly audits. We have to sign multiple amounts of paperwork when anytime someone's trying to spend money. We have lots of people that look over, two or three people that look over credit card reports every single month to make sure that we are spending money in a way that honors God and his people. In fact, I love our accounting department at the end of their emails. It says, we spend people's worship. This is what we're doing. This is a serious thing. This is an act of worship. And so you don't handle it flippantly and you certainly don't abuse the trust. Don't abuse the trust. And then there's a second additional kind of giving that happens in the scriptures, and it's the kind of giving that directly benefits others. It's a giving to the poor. Proverbs 28 says this, those who give to the poor will lack nothing, but those who turn a blind eye will be greatly cursed. Proverbs 11:24. those who give generously receive more, but those who are stingy with what is appropriate to give will grow needy. Generous persons will prosper. And those who refresh others will be refreshed. I love that verse. Those who refresh others will be refreshed. This has captured Sarah and I so much that we've made it a goal for the last several years to try to give away a higher percentage of our income every year. Sometimes we're only able to move it point like 1% or 0.3% or a half a percent. There's been times when we've gone through transitions and moves or added children that it's been impossible for us to do that. But our goal every year is we sit down and look at our finances and we set out a budget for the year is to say, how can we live more simply so that we can give more generously? How can we sacrifice a bit more for the sake of God and his people and for the sake of those in our community around the world that need it. So we give first and foremost to New Life Downtown and then we give to missionaries who work with the marginalized and to the marginalized directly. And to say, God, this is what you call us into as the people of God is to live our lives this way. But it's important for us to capture in the middle of all these conversations, why do we do this? Why is it that the people of God do this. I think what happens so many times in our conversations around finances in the church is what happens is, is that we do this in order to get more from God. 
that this becomes our motivation. And all throughout the scriptures, we find that God refreshes those who refresh others and God pours out blessings on the generous. And we have all these scriptures that say that. So it's no wonder we fall into that place. But I don't think it should actually be the core of our motivation. If God entrusts us with more, that's great. If he chooses to kind of pour that out, but that can't be our motivation. Because Proverbs reminds us that there are better things than financial wealth. Things like wisdom, things like character, things like faithfulness, things like a good reputation. And we know that not all of the Lord's blessings are material. In fact, the best blessings are usually not. They're relational. They're spiritual. They're communal. They're things that happen inside of us. They're transformational things that happen inside of us. Yes, the Lord does provide physical or material blessings to us, but he provides blessings to us in so many other ways. But every time we read blessing, we see dollar signs. And we forget, no, that's not the only way that God pours out the heavens to us. Look around. He's pouring out the heavens by the people that are sitting around you. This is how he's poured out the heavens to us. See, the reason the people of God give is we give as an act of love. Because we love God and we love people. And we give to remind ourselves that our hope is not found in material things. That our hope is found in Jesus Christ. And in his life, death, and resurrection, we're reminded that this is not our future. It's just holding on and clutching on to these kind of things. But our future is a glorious future where every need is met in the new heavens and the new earth. We give that we might participate with the Spirit's work in forming us into the kind of people who are like Jesus, who created the world. Engaged in ethical, beautiful, wonderful industry, who himself was a craftsman and worked with his hands. Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, became human and didn't even have a place to rest his head, but found contented simplicity in daily bread, and who gave sacrificially gave generously to all of us, came that he might give. And we're reminded that every time we come to the table, we're receiving the abundance of God's provision poured out to us. And we're asking him, praying to him, would you teach us to live this way? Would you teach us to live the way of Jesus? Lives that culminate in sacrificial generosity that express the love of God and the love of neighbor. Sarah, would you lead us to the table this morning?